0: Welcome to Communication on Point. I'm your host, Dean Hefta. This podcast is designed to bring insights and ideas to help you grow your communication and build your influence in working with organizations and individuals. Today, I'm joined by a special guest, a mentor and friend of mine, Vinny Gerace. Very few people in my life have had more influence on how I think about organizations and how I approach communication than Vinny. Today, we talk about Insights on how we need to be thinking about change when it comes to our organizational culture and our individual style when it comes to our approach as leaders. Whether you're a leader of an organization and you're facing changes that need to be made to grow or adjust the organization, or you're an individual that could be on a change of career path or moving within an organization, you're going to find insights that help you think differently about interpersonal relationships in the workplace and leadership styles. Let's get started. Vinny Gerace, welcome to Communication on Point. I'm so excited to have you and talk with you about uh, some really important topics today. Thanks for having me. So, One of the things, as I'm talking with business leaders the past several weeks uh, with all the changes that we're facing, each business, depending on the industry they're in, are are facing some sort of a change, whether demand is up and so they're having to grow or demand has gone away and they're having to do a lot of reorganization or how they even do their work. You know, there's all this expansion and contraction going on. And when we deal with that, certainly the structure changes maybe I get a new boss, you know, the whole organization changes and that really affects how we communicate. That's what I'm hearing from people in different businesses is just this whole structure of how we communicate changing. And I wanted to hear from you, what are some things as a leader that I need to be thinking about when it comes to organizational changes and communication?
1: And what are some things that I need to know? Sure. And that would, uh, that would affect not just your boss relationship or, changes in the leadership above you, but actually uh, it can also affect the way your organization interacts with a supplier or a vendor or a customer because their organizations are changing. And so you may not have the same relationship that you had before. You may be relating to a new person in their organization or a person that was the boss of the person that you used to deal with. So yeah, it's going to affect uh, a lot of dynamics uh, interpersonally. Obviously, you're going to want to be good at a lot of what we do at human dynamics is communications training and understanding operational workflow and that sort of thing. But I think probably the thing that trips people up the most is when they switch leaders or they're dealing with a new customer representative, And that customer representative just doesn't have the same perspective on organizational culture. So they go about executing their authority or their scope of work with a very different approach than the person that they were dealing with before. And this takes me in my thinking to the work of Dr. Charles Handy and the four dimensions of organizational culture Because when we teach the four dimensions of organizational culture from a human dynamics perspective, what we realize is that every leader has an instinctive default when it comes to organizational culture. You're, You're either a power culture person by your instinct, or you're a role culture person by your instinct, or you're a task culture person by your instinct or you're a personnel culture person by your instinct. And a lot of times it has to do with your industry, your background, your work history, but you're going to approach your scope of work or your authority from one of these four dimensions. And if it's not the same as the person that you were dealing with before, that's quite a shift.
0: When you talk about organizational culture, that, it's one of those things that's kind of under the surface and we don't think a lot about it until something surprises us. How does the individual, you mentioned the individual style and the organizational culture style, how do those pieces fit together as we make changes, as we work with new people?
1: How how does that interplay? Right. Uh, you say organizational culture and people, (laughs) their minds go to different places. So, you know, you got one person who thinks, oh, my gosh, we're going to talk about a group hug and somehow how, how we all have to be warm and friendly to one another. Or I got another person who says, oh, my gosh, this is going to be like the sexual harassment training that I went through. It's got something to do with legal parameters. You got another person whose mind goes to, oh, we're going to talk about planting flowers along the sidewalks so that we can have good organizational culture. I'm talking about the way the organization looks at and works with authority. Let me give you an example. In some organizations, some leaders, they have what is called a power culture mentality. Dr. Charles Handy described the power culture as a business who their decision-making and their direction is set by dominant individuals. Now, those dominant individuals are not always at the top of the organizational structure. They're just highly influential people within the structure. So, these highly influential people, these dominant individuals, they look at the business direction or the business problem. They make a decision, and all of a sudden, they just start pushing the organization in that direction. So, decision-making in a power culture is very, very fast. If I'm the CEO and I, I run a power culture kind of company, and I have 15 engineers working for me, but there's one engineer that I I ask my engineering questions of him. There's one marketing person in the 20 marketing people that I have. There's one salesperson in the sales group that I have and I go to those dominant individuals. I get feedback from them. They're not necessarily leading their department, but they are my go-to people and I get feedback from them. And then I make a decision and then I push that decision into the organization. The organization's growth is limited by direct leader engagement. Now, what that means is if the leaders are pushing it, it happens. If the leaders aren't pushing it, it doesn't happen. I was working with a power culture company uh, last week, really. And uh, what was going on is there was a leader over HR and they had an initiative that was all, you know, it was okay from the top of the organizational food chain, the problem was the person in charge of HR was not one of the dominant individuals in the organization. So no matter how hard she drove that agenda, that agenda just never took off. And it didn't take off because the power group in the organization didn't get on board with it. And remember, that power group is not necessarily the same as the org chart.
0: I was just gonna say that, it sounds like that's kind of a phantom organizational chart of where power exists different than what the structure of the of the company is.
1: Yes, very often. In fact, most of the time, the leader, the CEO, the president of the organization in a power culture, that's the person who, if that's the top of the authority chain, it's that person's instinctive default to the power culture that created the power culture to begin with. Right. And so he might hire in somebody to manage a department, but he still goes for his advice to the person three layers down under that person that he trusts. Now, does that create problems? You can see right off the bat that that's going to create problems but in a power culture, you get used to watching the power brokers and when the power brokers move, you get used to aligning yourself with them and that's how those organizations get so much done so fast. They're very fast-paced organization. It's It's one of the hallmarks of a power culture is that they can turn on a dime and they often do.
0: When you look at a power culture and the characteristics of it, do you find there are certain sizes of companies or types of industries where they seem to do better?
1: Not really. Uh, You've got Apple computers under Steve Jobs was a power culture. Where Steve Jobs was taking the organization, that's where the organization was going to go. He had key people in the organization under him that advised him. They were not always in the direct chain of command. And and that's a huge company. They were also very fast-paced, very fast-moving, stayed on the cutting edge of their industry, and they did so because of the power culture. What the dominant individuals push, that's what happens. The other agendas while very well-meaning, very useful, very profitable, etc., 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 can go by the wayside. Now, I can tell you that even in small entrepreneurial environments, you can have one of the other cultural aspects, because the core leader is oriented toward that. Sometimes it's helpful to juxtapose one kind of culture against another. So let me explain one of the other types of culture. And you can see the differences between them. So in a power culture, you have this dispersed informal network of dominant individuals. And they are informing each other or informing the key leader at the top. And that key leader at the top is making decisions that are then driven down into the organization. In a role culture, you have a role-specific decision-making matrix. So in the power culture, your decision-making is made by dominant individuals. In a role culture, your decision-making is driven by role specificity. So what does that mean? That means in a power culture, if I'm the top guy in the power, power culture and I have a director of marketing, And in the director of marketing's department, there is a marketing person in there that I inherently trust that person's instincts for marketing. I go to that person and I say, what do you think about this? I hear through the chain of command that the marketing department wants to do X, Y, and Z next year. And then I go validate whether or not that's a good plan with a person three tiers down from me. In a role culture, if you are the director of marketing, you are the last say in what happens with marketing. You can't be overruled by someone who does not have marketing in their title. Even titles as generic as CEO and president, okay, can, uh, they can influence your perspective on marketing, but you're the marketing person. And because of that, you are expected to make the call. If the organization doesn't think their marketing is doing well, they their only option is to fire you and get somebody they believe has more talent. Because they don't have the wherewithal to make the decision for you. In a power culture, the power leader above you in the organization is going to make the marketing call regardless of how you advise them. Got it. Even if they don't know very much about marketing. Now, remember, they have this sort of this uh, underground network of people that they check things with, but the power culture dominant individuals make the call. So when you think about what sets the limit of a power culture, it's the talents and abilities of the dominant individuals. But what sets the limits in a role culture is how well the systems of the organization run. So does the marketing person's marketing plan actually integrate well with the sales team's sales goals? Does it actually integrate with the operational teams, operational goals, and so on and so forth. So it's actually the systems in the organization that cause the limits of the organization to come about. And of course, its growth is not driven from direct leader engagement. Its growth is driven by how aligned the internal decision making is to the market dynamics. Because now you have the best person at engineering making the engineering decisions. You have the best person at operations making the operations decisions. You have the best person at marketing making the marketing decisions and so on and so forth. And because you have the best people in your organization making the best possible decisions for their areas, the limits are set by how integrated they are and growth is driven by how aligned to the market it is. And see, that's vastly different from a power culture. So let's say that COVID-19 comes along. You've got a a vendor whose business is exploding, and he's promoting people. And all of a sudden, the person you're dealing with, who used to be a power person, is now suddenly a role person see in the power per- when when you were dealing with the power person that power person would say yes or no on the spot and you would have a deal the role person has very restricted authority it's restricted by his role title and usually there are checks and balances so role oriented cultures tend to be quite a bit more bureaucratic so you might go to your power culture contact and say hey I need to uh, I've got these challenges on my supply line I'm going to need to raise the price 10% you work it out with them they say yes it's a done deal in the role culture they say well we have a contract it stipulates this is the price for this length of time it actually has a clause in it that says you're going to pay this penalty if you you don't get it to us for this at this rate in this time period. And I don't get to change the parameters of that, so you you can't raise our price. Oh, but you can raise it next year because our budgeting process starts in about two months, and it's three months long, and I can put that in as an increase for next year. I do have the authority to do that. Well, that's a vastly different culture that you're facing, and that's just two organizational. And yeah,
0: facts. there's two more. And as, as you're talking, I'm thinking about people who maybe have worked at a company for the first three or five or 10 years of their career. And then they're approached by another company and they make a change. And within a few weeks or or maybe a month, they realize this is a completely different environment than I thought even right. existed. Like they didn't even conceive of it. And it's probably these power structures or role structures that they're encountering that are so different for them.
1: The four dimensions of organizational culture, you will be, if you switch from one organization to another and they don't use the same dimension of organizational culture as their dominant dimension, you're going to notice and you're going to notice really fast. Like within weeks, you're going to notice. Got it. So tell us about task. Okay. The task dimension of organizational culture is actually Short for task force, okay? So there are entire organizations that work on a task force level. I'll juxtapose this for clarity's sake against the role culture. So I mentioned in the role culture, you'll have a director of such and such, let's say marketing. In a task force culture, a task force of some marketing people, some non-marketing people will be gathered together to determine the marketing plan for the next year, or to determine how to approach a particular uh, company if it's in sales, or a task force will be pulled together for how to create an operational improvement, if you're talking about that department or that function. But the entire organization is organized into task force task forces. Now, what this means is that you only have authority for as long as your task force is pulled together.
0: So that task force might be related to a a certain project or some sort of accomplishment that they've been organized for, and then they, at the end of that, disperse and maybe get on a new group that's working on a project. Is that kind of the dynamics?
1: So I'm in Wichita, Kansas, and there is a a lot of uh, airplane building kinds of companies here. And many uh, of those companies have strong task force cultures. So they might be looking at an adaptation for a plane and they'll pull in a person who's good at uh, FAA regulations and they'll pull in a set of engineers on different disciplines. And they'll pull in some project management people and some finance people and some marketing people. And that's the task force that's gonna lead that endeavor. But as soon as that endeavor is over, that task force is broken up. In fact, it might break up earlier than completion. Just because the majority of the work has narrowed down to two or three disciplines, they send everybody else into other project groups. So for the most part, you see the task force culture in a business that views its business as a series of projects.
0: So I'm thinking about construction companies and software companies that are developing software and uh, manufacturing projects, things like that. So that... Would that be a natural kind of thing
1: you'd encounter in those environments? Take construction, for example. You might find a power culture in a construction company. You might find a role culture in a construction company. You might find a task culture in a construction company. It really comes back to the core leader. Whoever the core leader is, they bring their default toward organizational culture to bear on the organization. And eventually it, shapes the organization into a a version of them. So any organization changing out a C-level executive should really be asking itself, does the outgoing person and the incoming person have the same default when it comes to organizational culture or are we gonna see the shakedown happen? Maybe we need that. Maybe we need the shakedown to happen Because what happens when you pull out a power person and you put in a role person, you're going to get an enormous amount of structure. You're going to get an absolute level of discipline and authority. What happens when you switch out a power person for a task person or a task person for a role person, there's a shakedown as it comes, works down into the organization and a resistance to it. If your organization has been operating in a comfortable fashion under a power broker person, and all of a sudden, you bring in a role-oriented person, and people don't have access to instantaneous decisions, they don't have access to the same information that they had before, they're left out of certain conversations because they were a power broker in the system. And now they're, they have a role function. They, it looks bureaucratic and it looks slow and they start criticizing the organization because they don't feel the same levels of esteem. This is a big deal. Right. A lot of turnover. Typically uh, within six months you start seeing conflict that's turning into combat, if they don't resolve the combat, within 18 months, you see people exiting the organization, sometimes quite a bit faster. So I I, met, I talked about the power culture and the role culture a lot. Let me finish uh, outlining some of the task culture things. So it is a organizational task force culture. It's fast paced, but in pockets. So the speed is isolated to the task force. So what's really happening is what is driving organizational growth is the individual ambition of the people in the task forces.
0: I'm picturing squads of SEAL teams going out to execute missions. And, and you're, you're entrusting them to make the decisions they need, they need to make and get the job done. And, and go with it because they've been extended
1: the authority yes. they need. And some of those groups are going to charge through the front door. Some are going to be far more subtle. Some are going to use guerrilla tactics. Some are going to use sniper tactics. So yes, uh, individualized skills and ambitions drive the achievement of the organization in a task force culture. The limits of the organization are set by teamwork and communication. Pretty much the task force culture doesn't get a lot done when there's a lot of interpersonal drama. You have to be able to keep drama to a minimum. And this means you have to have really strong rules about behavior and communication. A lot of times in a task force culture, the leaders are always talking about the values of the organization. These are our values, and those values are very specific and they're behavior-shaping value statements. In meetings, we don't talk without permission. Silence in a meeting is never uh, agreement. Uh, We leave meetings by encapsulating what was decided and discussed in the meeting. There are specific rules around teamwork, there are specific rules around communication. You can't have a meeting without a written agenda.
0: So you have these rituals.
1: And they are monitored v- very closely, and there are severe consequences for noncompliance because in a task force culture, you have to work in rhythm with other people without the drama and the friction and the rules when you move from one task force to another need to be the same for the participant
0: the task force culture seems a little bit more maybe nimble and and fluid from the outside but it sounds like it's actually got quite a bit of structure that it's that they're all operating with
1: yes but that structure has a lot to do with behavior it uh, actually of the three organizations, that's the one where you have to behave the best. And the reason for that is if you're in a role culture and you're the top guy in your department, it really doesn't matter if you treat your people well or not, because you're the guy until you're removed. Got it. Now the reality is you mentioned, you know, the idea of SEAL teams attacking different objectives, but uh, the military is actually a role culture organization. It is an absolute structure to its authority. When you have the title, you have the power. And your power is limited by your title. And it is highly bureaucratic.
0: Acronyms and processes and
1: forms, and yeah. All right. There is another dimension of organizational culture called the personnel dimension, or the personal dimension, some people will call it. And here, uh, the best way to illustrate this is to think of a doctor's office, not with a single doctor, but sort of the clinic idea. So you have this clinic of independent practicing doctors. So you've got 30 doctors, all consolidating their overhead structures, and working out of one clinic. Now, if you're a patient, you have a doctor in the clinic. If your doctor happens to be on vacation, you'll see another doctor, maybe. Otherwise, you wait for your doctor to get back. And if your doctor leaves the organization, the organization can expect to lose 70 to 85% of the patients associated with that doctor.
0: Because the relationship is with the doctor and not the uh, organization.
1: So I have a client uh, that is a architectural firm, and it is a personnel culture. Because an architect has a specific design quality to their work, and their customers prefer that design quality. And so they keep coming back to the same person. And if that person were to change companies, guess what happens to the customer? They seek out that person. They have that person's individual cell phone number. Now, they may not use it. They might call the office phone. But for the most part, when they have a question about the architecture, they call their architect. So that's an example of a personnel culture. So business direction, decision-making in the organization is sort of like a committee decision. If it's for the whole organization, there's this council or committee that makes the decision. If it's for a branch of the organization, then it's individually determined by that key personnel. Take that doctor's office. That I mentioned. When the doctor leaves that practice, his nurse usually leaves with him. That's how individualized the culture is. So, direction, business decision making, it's either a council or it's individually determined. Yeah, I hear about. When
0: you mention clinics where maybe there's partner doctors that are together and they don't really have a person in charge, it's really run by a committee. And so it sounds like that fits into this personnel type.
1: Yes. Very often that committee will hire an office manager. And it's a pretty innocuous title, but in a medical clinic, the office manager has wide-ranging powers and authority because they interact with the committee but then they execute the administrative overhead issues because the way these uh, personnel organizations work, you've got all these individual silos and they're sharing the overhead burden of their organization. So the limits of the organization are set by how well organized those individual silos are. So it's the resource sharing across the silos that expands your limitations and growth in the organization is driven by the silo leader. So you have uh, that team of doctors, that clinic, that set of dentists, that set of architects, how do they get their medical division of their architectural company to grow? Well, it really comes back to the entrepreneurial drive of the core architect that does medical buildings. And then they have an educational division that does educational buildings. And so the medical division is growing by 30% year over year, the educational divisions growing by 3% year over year. And it comes down to the entrepreneurial drive of the core architects. Are there market dynamics? Yes but it comes down to the the entrepreneurial drive to capitalize on market opportunity that each silo leader has. So you can see in the four dimensions of organizational culture, you've got four very different decision-making, directional decision-making processes, four very different kinds of organizational limits, and the thing driving the growth of the organization is different in each case. And all of a sudden, you're dealing with the same vendor, but you're dealing with a different person, and every leader has a default to one of these. Now, why why did Dr. Candy call them dimensions rather than styles or something like that? Because a large organization will typically have all four working in it at some level, at least the first three, power, role, and task. The personnel culture, it is more specific to certain industries, but not always. So you got the, a company might have pockets of power culture and pockets of role culture and pockets of task culture. And what you're going to find is that creates an enormous amount of internal conflict. So in the work you do, in the work I do, where we go in and we evaluate where opportunity lies, even within the existing market space of a company, waste is what we're looking for. What is wasted effort, wasted time, and wasted money? And how can we remove that waste? And one of the key things an organization can do is decide what kind of culture are we really going to have? Because when we have one style of culture, we're going to move with less waste. When you have three different cultures or two different cultures working within your organization, those cultures are in friction with one another.
0: Well, and in, in what I see is the greatest source of friction is when you bring in very high-level um, decision-makers, executives in the company that are maybe newer to it. And they each subconsciously are bringing with these very different views on what, where power should lie and what the roles should be and how decision-making should happen. And that conflict at the top yes, is, it is. is really destructive.
1: Yep. The man-hours of productive work lost to this kind of conflict I would hesitate to say, I wouldn't hesitate to say that 10% of the man hours in any given organization is lost to this kind of conflict. Sure. And would you say
0: that because we don't we're not communicating about it, we're not talking about it because we don't really have the language. What I see with this model is it gives us a way of understanding how these different pieces fit together and what makes them different. And once we have that language as leaders or as individuals in the organization to understand how this is happening. We can more easily talk about it, and when when maybe change is happening or a shakeup is happening, we can be more conscious to discuss it. Uh, how does How does that fit into these moments where we're we're dealing with changes? Or I think about mergers and acquisitions and and all of those types of things? Well,
1: this is why I teach this as part of the Capstone class in the leadership development program that my organization offers. And we teach that capstone class to the highest level of authority in the organization before we'll teach it to anybody in the organization. Because there are things in that capstone class like this, that the top leaders of the organization need to know. I was working in an organization not that long ago that had a power culture guy as the CEO had a role culture guy as the president and has a task culture guy as their CFO. The power culture guy would get his uh, network of moles to give him information. He he would make a decision, hand it to the president of the organization and say, execute this. That guy would appoint somebody to a position of leadership and say, you're in charge of this. You, You are the man for the, you know, This this is the marketing aspect of that plan, and you're in charge of it. And this is the operational part of that plan, and you over here, you're in charge of that. And here's the sales part of that plan, and you, Mr. Sales Guy, you're in charge of that. And the task force culture guy is saying, but he only has 2% of his available time for that program. How in the world is he going to push that? We need a task force to do this with that's completely dedicated to this initiative, you can see how much conflict that can create. What I challenge those leaders to do in the capstone class is to understand their default and then to choose amongst themselves how their organization is going to function. Because just because it's your default doesn't mean that's what you get to go do. The organization has accountability. When they look to the most accountable body of people in that organization, how does that body of people expect them to operate? And if it's the role culture that that body of people expects, then your power culture guy and your task culture guy are going to have to make some adaptations.
0: Okay, I got a question here. Let's say there's somebody that's in charge of um, a department within an organization. She's... Been there a while, been successful, and because of the reorganization that's happening, she's been asked to move to a slightly different area, maybe a totally different department, but she's bringing her expertise and her experience and leadership to that department. What are some of the things that she should be asking about or understanding before she goes into it, or just to get a better understanding of uh, how to make that type of a transition more effective? for herself and for the organization?
1: First of all, she is not in the personnel culture because whatever she's leading isn't what she was leading before and the expertise and the person never separate in a personnel culture. So it's one of the other three. Okay. And what I would tell that person is first, you need to know your default. Are, are you a power person? Are you a role person? Are you a task person? Then you need to know the uh, default of the outgoing person, the person you're replacing. And it's not so much that you need to know his, as you need to know how the department has been functioning. Have they been de-functioning, functioning as a power department? Have they been functioning as a role department? Have they been functioning as a task department? And here's the truth. If your instinctive default does not align to how the organization has been using that department, then when you step into leadership, there's going to be a significant amount of change. You're gonna have to be able to explain that change to people. You're gonna have to get them to align themselves with the new methodology. So let's say that this lady that you're talking about, she's a, a role culture person. And she has uh, been moved to this department that has been operating as a power culture department. The decision-making process with her is going to be slower. It is going to be why uh, it's going to collect information from a broader group of people, and it's going to collect that information and make that decision through the chain of command, not apart from it. That she's going into a department that has historically listened to what the leader wanted and then agreed to it. Not a lot of independent thinking. Okay? That's what they're walking into.
0: A very execution-oriented culture, just do it.
1: Watch for it. And when you see the leader leaning in one direction, then you put your weight behind their tilt. That's a power culture because the way you achieve anything in a power culture is to get behind the leader. If you're blocking the leader's way or obstructing the leader, you're usually pushed to the periphery or out of the organization. So how many people are really doing a lot of independent thinking in a power culture? Not very many. In fact, I've heard a lot of power culture leaders say, I don't get it. Every decision floats up to me. <laughs> That's because you feel the freedom to overrule everybody's decision. So they just wait for you to make it.
0: Right? Why well, go through all the decision-making? If it's just going to get changed later, wait for it to get made by the person who has
1: the power. In a role culture, uh, every person that, leads a tier of people, has decision-making rights, they have scope uh, to their decision, they have content to their decision that they are expected to be the masters of. But that takes a long time to establish, so it can seem slow and bureaucratic.
0: So in looking at, at her moving into this role, it sounds like there's some clear communication that has to happen with the team that, what I'm thinking is focused first on her being able to articulate that she understands how things have been getting done in that department, in that area, and then also be able to describe and establish expectations of how she will be moving the department or how, how what they can expect for her style of that department. Is that... A, a fair approach for somebody taking on that type of role?
1: Yes. In fact, she needs to understand those things in three specific areas: directional decision making, organizational limits, and what drives achievement. If she's a role person coming into a power culture, she she has to understand this this entire department has been trained to watch for my ideas okay my likes and dislikes my uh, opinions and perspectives and then chase after it whether it's the right thing to do or not because in her mind the right thing to do is look at the market dynamics that's what drives growth Align to the market dynamic but in a power culture that's not what drives growth the instinct of that power culture to capitalize upon an immediate achievement, even if it's cutting their nose off despite their face. Uh, That's what the entire department has been trained to do. So she's going to have to retrain the department to understand, to look at the market dynamics to determine where to go. She may have leaders that simply don't know how to make those decisions. She'll have to change them out. What she can expect is that systems and systems innovation, which is the the thing that creates the very limits of what a role culture can do are probably going to be non-existent in the power culture systems and systems innovation is very refined in the role culture, but it's often non-existent in a power culture. So she comes in expecting there to be one way to do something. And there's seven ways to do that thing. Each one of them led by a different dominant individual. So again, organizational limits, organizational growth, and then decision-making. She's going to have to understand, I I am bringing in a different culture with me. They obviously want that cultural impact because they're putting me over this, okay? Because I did the role culture thing in this other department, they really liked it. They're putting me over this new department. They're expecting the same kind of results. So they want the role culture in the new department, but that's not what she's walking into. Right. And again, she's got to remember that every sub leader has an instinct for one of these cultural perspectives. I was in a power culture organization uh, about two months ago. They had an engineering department led by a guy who was a personnel culture person. Every, in his mind, every engineer should have been able to engineer every should have been able to do every type of engineering, hmm. and that's that's that, that doesn't even compute in the world of engineering. Right. You have electrical engineers, and you have civil engineers. The civil engineer does not do what the electrical engineer does, and yet he expected, and what he actually said, engineering's engineering is engineering. And he himself was an engineer, but being a generalist type of person, being a personnel culture kind of person who always worked in firms where the engineers were really, they were always engineering consultants. They were, he was never a a line engineer in an organization. He was always an engineering consultant, got this big name for himself in engineering consulting, got hired into this company that was a power culture. It was a complete misfit. So you can see where understanding organizational culture is going to affect promotion. It's going to affect uh, hiring decisions, firing decisions. What, What happens if you're in a power culture and you fire a power broker? There's an absolute hole in your organization and you can't get around it until you replace that person with a new power broker
0: right and that doesn't that's not related to their experience or their knowledge or anything like that
1: their decision making style their way they drive achievement the way they get people to listen to them and do the things that they say and you can't you can't get anything done and when you have a strict power culture and then for whatever reason you lose one of your power brokers it's like losing a limb it's like an amputation more than a firing so yes it affects hiring but it also affects firing and in today's market where you have organizations rapidly changing size whether they're rapidly expanding or rapidly contracting or just trying to hold their own understanding organizational culture and unifying their organizational culture is going to help them become more efficient
0: What's something as, uh, as a leader, as I face making different changes in the organization, it could be with how we're structured and organized. It could be the size of us moving people around in different roles. What's something that when we look at all, all that you've shared, all of these insights that I need to keep in mind as I move forward from here, whether it's two weeks from now or two months from now or a year from now, what needs to stick in my mind as I face those types of
1: decisions? Okay, so the primary thing I think that you come away from this with is that I have a default and I need to know what it is. If I'm a role person, I need to know that and I need to know what kind of organizational expectations are being placed on me. If I'm a role person working under a task force person, I'm going to get dissatisfied with certain things like when they keep switching me from one team to another and I don't have the same people under my authority all the time. I need to know two things. I need to know the working environment, organizational culture, and I need to know my default organizational style. And I need to know how to switch from one to the other. When I look at, because I get hired so often to deal with conflict, conflict resolution, and I can get the people okay with each other. Once you get the people okay with each other, they can work on the problem. This is the first problem that they encounter almost every time. It's so consistent. You've got different organizational dimensions controlling the organizational culture. And sometimes the people that were having the conflict because of it aren't in a position to change it. So they need to learn the adaptation skills.
0: Because in that moment, that's the only thing I can control is my adaption because I can't change the, the organization.
1: Uh, many of them can't. They're not in positions where they can. They don't have that kind of influence or authority. And the ones that do, oftentimes, they're the source of the culture, so they really don't see a problem with it. Some of the wisest leaders I've ever encountered in business have understood their organizational preference. But they understood that their industry and their company needed to use a different one. And so they led a culture they did not instinctively understand. But they managed their internal anxieties, they calmed their tensions, and they dealt with that internally. And then they led in their organizational culture that they determined was best for their industry, best for their company, best for the people, and best for the customer. I remember a power culture guy out in California that that basically made the decision the company needs to be a role-oriented company. Our investor group, our customer pool, our vendors and suppliers, a lot of them, a lot of those different organizations are role-based cultures. We probably need to get aligned to that to fit into our network of companies better. And even though he was a power culture person, I – sat down with him and helped him understand the difference between the power culture and the role culture, outlining a set of things that he was going to experience that he said he was already experiencing, but yes, that he was going to experience tension around these things. In fact, what he said to me is, I'm not sure I know how to lead this because I've always made the call for what we're going to go do. You're telling me that it comes from subordinate people. That where we're going to go next is going to come from marketing. How we're going to get there is going to come from operations. How profitable is it going to be is going to come from finance. And he says, I'm used to making those decisions, setting those directions, not facilitating them out of a group of people. And he says, and frankly, I can integrate them in my head when they're all my ideas, and I don't know how to get them to agree to them when they're not all my ideas. I said, role culture people are really good at systems innovation and systems integration.
0: It takes a lot of uh, awareness and discipline, certainly, to, to make that kind of a change.
1: And when he made the shift, I can say that they were for a luxury home built they were the top luxury home builder in all of southern california because of his ability to make that shift
0: well this has been tremendously insightful in thinking about culture thinking about those things that we encounter and if we're facing really changing dynamics in our work environment we're going to be encountering these things in new ways maybe we've been working with the same group the same way for five years and when that changes I mean, the math tells us we're going to encounter some very different styles. And I think it's helpful for us to be able to recognize there isn't a necessarily infinite number of styles we're going to face. We're going to run into these four primary tendencies uh, in different parts of our organization, in different companies, if we're changing companies. And so it helps us to, to become more aware of ourself and of the world around us. And so I am so thankful for you sharing these insights with us. So... Vinnie Drace, just in wrapping up, tell us a little bit about kind of who you work with and some of the things you do. And, and if somebody has more questions and wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to reach out?
1: Well, Human Dynamics is a company that specializes in understanding the dynamics between individuals in the workplace and how it affects organizational effectiveness. What we do is we we use a set of assessments to assess people. We do training. We assist in hiring and organizing and restructuring. We're basically a consulting organization to organizational leaders who have to understand people to get things done. As far as contacting us is concerned, you can send me an email, vinnygerace at gmail.com. So it's Vinny, V-I-N-N-Y, Gerace, G-E-R-A-C-E, at gmail.com. Awesome. Vinny, thank you so much for
0: sharing your insights with us today. And it's been really informative and I look forward to us talking more again soon.
1: You're welcome. Thank you.